This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, we are bringing you a new feature called Postscripts. Over the next months, Susan LaBelle and I will be inviting authors to the program to react to contemporary political developments that engage their scholarship. Given Joe Biden's selection of Senator Kamala Harris as his running mate, I've invited Julia Azari and William Adler to join us to talk about the vice presidential selection process and implications. Julia and William are working on a book about vice presidential selection and parties. Some of this work has been published as blog posts at Mischiefs of Faction and at at the blog House Divided, and it also has been presented at various political science conferences. So let's get into it. Joe Biden's selection of Senator Harris is groundbreaking in, in certain ways, but not in other ways. And you two have written about how and when the vice presidential selection is more of an establishment choice and when it is a departure. How and why should we think about the choice of Senator Harris in this context? So I think that this is pretty clearly um, an example of the role of the um, the party in vice presidential selection. And some of this is, is this kind of notion about bringing together different constituencies within the party um particularly that part of the part of the conversation as um black political leaders in the democratic party were consolidating around biden there was a sort of commentary about how about the need for a black uh vice presidential candidate so i think it sort of shows those kinds of intraparty um, intraparty dynamics. Also, you know, Harris is obviously a candidate of very much of um, party, you know, the party political establishment. She's a sitting senator. She was a, a candidate for president. So I think that it, you know, at the risk of saying this shows that our this shows our most, most recent conference paper on this topic was right. I do think it's in line with with some of the arguments we made based on past selections. And- yeah, I think that's right. Um, in terms of the way that she stacks up against Tim Kaine or Paul Ryan um, or Sarah Palin, um, where does she kind of land? Well, one of the things we've argued uh, in some of our work is that uh, you know Republicans do this thing where they tend to pick running mates who are further to the right than the presidential candidate, whereas. Uh, Democrats don't do that. In fact, usually the opposite pattern where Democrats pick a running mate closer to the center uh, than than the presidential candidate. And what's interesting looking at Kamala Harris is she 
kind of, on one measure anyway, uh, is to the left of Joe Biden. If you were to look at, say, the, you know, the DW nominate scores of Biden's career in the Senate versus Kamala Harris in the Senate, um, Harris is clearly to the left on that measure. At the same time, she seems, from another perspective, just sort of looking at her, you know, more broadly, um, beyond the, the roll call voting, to be in kind of that center-left establishment place, as Julia was was mentioning earlier, um, and more or less ideologically, as, as Biden was saying, simpatico with him on those issues. So she's kind of a, a, a normal choice for the Democrats in that respect, even if on the, you know, just strictly looking at the at the data, maybe you would argue she's slightly left. And in, in terms of her... The selection of Senator Harris, we've we've heard, you know, a lot. Obviously, she's the African American. She is Asian American. Um, she is from California, which is also seems to be somewhat of an anomaly for a Democratic um, ticket at this point. Uh, but in terms of your overall thesis, um, what is it beyond the sort of ideological structure? Um, or ideological connection on either the Republican ticket or the Democratic ticket that makes her either unique or fitting into your thesis? Um, I'm sorry, I'm not following at all. Okay. Um, how does how does how does the selection of Senator Harris? fit into your broader thesis with regard to presidential selection of vice presidential running mates that's either that's that's beyond the question of ideological simpatico or not i mean i think that's the the really the center of our um our argument um one thing as william said is that the um republican candidates so we've, let me back up and talk a little bit actually about the presidential candidates themselves and our um, our attempt to sort of intervene in the way that we talk about ideology. So typically in the vice presidential selection literature, ideology um, has is sort of um, categorized as like conservative, moderate, liberal. There isn't a lot of attention to how these these categories evolve over time um, or how they might have a lot of variation within them. So what we do is we try to like, we try to make this more, you know, make it more continuous, right? Look at ideology as a continuum and look at how a, a presidential selection can move a ticket to the left or right. Um, and depending on whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, that sort of either moves the ticket to the center or moves it into the party's base. And Republican presidential candidates recently tend, they tend to have not been what I would call movement conservatives, um, people who are, you know, who are sort of steeped in evangelical Christian politics, in socially conservative politics, in kind of Reaganomic politics. You know, people like like John McCain, like Mitt Romney, and then Donald Trump, who's you know coming out completely outside the party tradition, um, and they tend to pick running mates who are either from movement conservatism or um, or who are going to be broadly acceptable. Um, and an appeal to movement conservatives in some way. And what we find is that you don't really see that in the Democratic Party as, you know, as, as you get some more centrist nominees um, or, you know, some more centrist than others, 
but at any rate, they don't really pick running mates who kind of nod to the left. So our theory really is kind of rooted deeply in in ideology. And with Harris, we see that on the one hand, this like if you just look at the at these congressional scores that we um, use as one of our main measures, then Harris looks like she's quite to the left of Biden. But she's also not a candidate, as we note in a recent blog post, she's not a candidate of the left. She's not a candidate of the sort of Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and we also include Julian Castro in this um, in the swing of the party of people who really talk about deep systemic change. Um, that's a growing um, wing of the Democratic Party with with growing strength, and I think part of the part of the Biden project and part of Harris's kind of political persona as well really builds on this Obama effort to bridge between. Um, between a more kind of liberal democratic party, but also kind of with a with an eye toward maintaining and preserving, right? With a with an eye toward maintaining certain aspects of the system. We should say, you know, these candidates all have ties to powerful interests, as is often the case with, with powerful politicians. You know, they're not of the left in that way, and they're not disruptive in that way. Um, but they're also, I see them as being quite different from the kind of Clinton-Gore years um, and the party's serious tack to the center. They're kind of trying to to find a middle way between these two trajectories in the Democratic Party. And I see Harris as a sort of consolidation of Biden's project, of, really of reviving um, Obama-style Democratic politics. And And so in that regard, she is is somewhat in keeping with the Obama Biden ticket selection. Yeah, I think very much so. I think very much so. And also in the way that her selection is historic. I mean, we haven't quite talked about this and in some ways this is, you know, more the province of people who study, um, who study race and gender, but this is obviously a very historic pick. It's very notable. I think that the last two women who were picked as vice president were kind of picked to shake up the race on tickets, you know, Walter Mondale, John McCain, who were, were behind and they were trying to generate any interest in their ticket. In the case of Mondale, trying to make an appeal to, to organize women's groups. And, you know, so trying to do something kind of interesting and with Biden, he's ahead and he doesn't need to shake up the race. And as many different people have observed um, on Twitter and other places, it's, you know, he, excuse me, um, Harris is kind of seen as the safe pick, which is, which is quite astounding, um, for someone who's also a historic first. But I think that Obama kind of carved out those, those politics where you see some kind of descriptive diversity at the same time that you have candidates who very much fall in line with, um, with standard democratic viewpoints and who aren't really the candidates of, you know, let's shake up the system, let's change things, let's ask questions about about capitalism. Um, and so I think that's very much Obama era politics. And, and in, in this regard, also, compared to some of the other possibilities on the list, that Kamala Harris comes in looking more traditional than somebody like maybe Tammy Duckworth or um, one of the other prospects. Is that correct? Well, it's interesting though, because in, in a certain way, you know, if, if the people competing against Kamala Harris were 
uh, you know, Tammy Duckworth and Gretchen Whitmer, who's the governor of a major Midwestern state that Biden and Trump are competing over. Um, in that sense, you know, those are two pretty straightforward mainstream Democratic politicians as well. Um, but Biden seemed to have really targeted early on the idea that he was going to pick a black woman on the ticket. Um, and so you had this sense, I think even as, as late as a couple days ago, organized uh, African-American groups putting out very public statements about how Biden really needs to pick a black woman um, for the ticket. And, and you know, uh, Biden winning on the, on the basis of, of Jim Clyburn's endorsement in the South Carolina primary really highlighted how important that group is to Biden and to the Democratic Party in this era. Um, and so in that respect, picking Duckworth or Whitmer or even in certain ways Elizabeth Warren, who was more of a nod to the Bernie Sanders wing of the party, would have been seen as a disappointment in the sense of the Democratic Party wanting someone Black on the ticket uh, to represent them, uh, as Julia was saying. Um, and so Duckworth or Whitmer probably would have been totally standard picks in any other year. Um, but this year you saw reaching for, you know, Val Demings or Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, or Susan Rice or Karen Bass um, got a lot of attention over the last couple of weeks, um, almost looking like the Biden team was exploring every black female Democratic politician they could possibly find um, just to make sure they were covering all their bases. And some of that played out very publicly over, over the last couple of weeks. Um, and so, and so the, in that respect, um, you know, the process was probably very different than other years. Um, but in the sense of the party having these open conversations about what it wanted, um, very normal looking. I want to actually jump in on experience and, and age. Um, and touch on some stuff we didn't get to in the blog post that I'm not sure for your question earlier, Lily, about what, what does and doesn't comport with our thesis and its predictions. I'm not totally sure that we have a well-developed set of hypotheses about this. So I want to be honest about that, but I think that, I think there's, there's two different things going on here in terms of age and experience, which Biden obviously is both one of the oldest and the oldest uh, presidential nominee ever. And, um, also one of the most experienced. And I think that that is actually, that provides, that puts you in sort of a tricky position when you're trying to pick a VP. When you're the less experienced, um, younger presidential nominee like Barack Obama was, then it's like, oh, you need to pick, you, know, you need to pick an older, more experienced person. Then you have like the whole Senate to pick from. Um, particularly when you know, that's when, when the presidential nominee is the person from a historically marginalized group. So that's kind of a different, it's kind of a different situation to be in. And when you're the more experienced candidate and the older candidate, the, then there are questions about, well, how do you balance, how do you balance that out without running the risk of picking someone who doesn't have conventional experience? And I think that that, you know, Harris is a, is a selection that threads that needle quite well. Um, in terms of her generation and, um, her experience in the Senate. So she's also, she joined the Senate in 2017. Um, 
I think what we're seeing here is actually two politicians who both kind of follow the, you know, follow the winds of their party. And we see kind of what that means for Biden having entered Congress in the 70s, served, you know, well through the 80s and the 90s and 2000s. Um, what it what it meant to be kind of in the middle of the Democratic Party at that time, right? It means the crime bill. It means you sometimes collaborate with Southern Republicans or Southern Democrats. It means you sometimes collaborate with Republicans. And, you know, what does it mean to be kind of a mainstream Democrat in the Trump era is, is quite a bit different. Um, and so I think in some ways we can understand the ideological differences between between Biden and Harris in terms of a kind of generational shift in the Democratic Party and the way in which party ideological stances and identities shift in response to changing political circumstances. And I do actually think that when you have when you have presidential tickets, when you look at age balancing, it's it's not just about like what do they look like or you know like vague things like campaign energy or um, some of the questions about serving, you know, the potential to serve in, in um, the office of president for however many years. It's not just about that, right? It's like the party, when someone entered politics and when they served, actually shapes their political stances and political identity. And so to some, to some extent, I think that, that age balancing is also a kind of party decision. And and so in this context also, and you you brought this up a little bit in terms of talking about their experience, that that both Biden, well Biden was vice president, but the longest career move was Biden in the United States Senate, and we also have now Senator Harris on the ticket with him, um, and she's also coming out of though having been a statewide elected official in California. And and so are there dyna- are there aspects of that besides being sort of an insider outsider, um, which you also talked about, that is unique with regard to this choice? I mean, I think it's interesting to me, and I haven't really sat with this, that two of the candidates that were um, talked about most publicly as as Biden's running mate, who were prominent black women in the Democratic Party, so you have Harris and you have Val Demings, uh, both have these sort of law enforcement backgrounds and what that, you know, what that kind of means. Um, in terms of being a statewide elected official, I mean, I do think that there is, usually there's something to be said for kind of having like executive experience. I don't know how much that will be part of the story in the, um, in the story about um, Harris's time as as Attorney General. I just we'll we'll see how the campaign unfolds, of course. But I think one of the things about Biden's Biden's political profile is that there's not a lot of uncovered ground just in terms of mainstream political experience. I don't know, William. Do you want to weigh in here? Yeah, I mean, I think you know Harris ran her own presidential campaign very heavily on the basis of you know, Kamala Harris for the people and talking about her record as a prosecutor. Um, And obviously that kind of didn't work for her. Um, So I'd be surprised if they played that up now. Um, You know, given everything that's going on with the protests after the death of George Floyd, um, you know, if she can spin that as, you know, I did these progressive things to try to reform the system from within, 
maybe that's helpful to them. Um, to some degree, it's really just, it's the descriptive aspect of it. It's that she is a black woman. Um, and, and so if she can make that argument successfully, it's not only on the basis of her personal experience, because she's also been critiqued for that experience from some people on the left of the Democratic Party. You hear people saying, oh, Kamala's a, a cop, um, which I always thought was a pretty funny thing because Val Demings actually was a cop. <laughs> Nobody critiqued her for that, as far as I could tell. Um, but but it's sort of it, it's sort of a, a you know you have to thread your own story in with the politics of the time, and you know maybe she can do that successfully. Um, you're also want, running into then the question of of you know which is sort of not exactly what we're doing, but it's a little bit related of just how much does it really matter who the vice president is anyway. Um, and it's not clear that that's ultimately going to matter. I think Trump himself a few days ago said, you know, ultimately people don't vote for the vice president anyway. Um, and I think that's right. But as, as you know, Devine and Kopko showed in their recent book about it, it does reflect on who the presidential candidate is that he's picking Kamala Harris. It shows what he represents about the Democratic Party. Um, so, you know, Trump will try to make some effort, I guess, to, to tie Biden into any objectionable part of Harris's record that they can find to try to make him look bad. Um, so far, they don't seem to have a strategy for doing that. And and so that was the sort of you you somewhat answered my last question is what impact does this choice have with regard to the way that the the campaign is prosecuted and ultimately how people vote? Yeah, I mean, I think once again, it sort of remains to be seen. I think there's been some very predictable um, reactions around. I've mostly seen race, um, predictable kinds of questions coming from predictable sources about is Harris really eligible to serve as president? Yes. Um, should, you know, should that need a rise? Um, you know, that kind of thing. I haven't seen as many gendered attacks, but I'm sure it's coming. Um, but also that these attacks are, these kinds of attacks are heavily partisan. So how much does that really change things? You know, it, that's not that's not obvious to me at this point. Um, I but I do think that what kind of the response that I tended to see um, yesterday in terms of Harris's selection was like, okay, Biden has chosen someone who who represents important groups in the Democratic Party that are historically marginalized and that Biden himself is not a part of, and this selection shows that he gets that, and he picks someone who is a high profile. Um, someone who built her national profile in part um, in, you know, in these Senate hearings with um, various members of the Trump administration, Trump appointees, including Brett Kavanaugh. And, you know, so she sort of has this reputation as, um, I think, as someone who's a kind of, you know, based on her lawyer days, like a tough prosecutor, a tough questioner. And, those are things that I think for people who are already favorably disposed to vote for, for Biden, they, um, they suggest his judgment. I think for people who weren't going to vote for him, that's not, um, it's not going to make a difference, but I don't think anyone really, um, really would have. So that's for me, it really is about how vice presidential selection kind of shapes the party. And this is a selection that has a, I think the potential to shape the party for a long time. I think that's absolutely right. And we should note also 
because of the fact of Biden's age and the fact that he would be 78 uh, if he wins and inaugurated, uh, that everybody's already openly speculating about run for a second term at the age of 81 um, is very much an open question. And so Kamala Harris is sort of already the heir apparent in 2024. And I think with that, we will leave it. Thank you, Julia Azari and William Adler for joining me to talk about the historic pick, the vice presidential slot on the Democratic ticket, and your work on the vice presidential selection process. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This is Lily Gorin continuing the conversation about vice presidential selection on this new feature of the New Books Network, New Books and Political Science podcast called Postscripts. Now I am joined by Linda Beal and Rhonda Kinney-Longworth to talk about their work on John McCain's choice of Sarah Palin in 2008 and what we might learn from that campaign and election cycle. Beal and Kinney um, Kinney Longworth wrote the book Framing Sarah Palin, Pitbulls, Puritans, and Politics, published by Rutledge in 2012. Given that the two of you wrote the book on Sarah Palin, the last female vice presidential candidate, and that her candidacy was interesting, controversial, and unique, what can we understand from thinking about that nomination and that candidate that might be useful to consider in context of Biden's choice of Kamala Harris? Thanks for having us, Lily, and for letting us talk about this really interesting idea of how candidates are framed um, by the media or by voters and how candidates present themselves as fitting into certain narratives that kind of resonate with the public or with different segments of voters. In thinking about Biden's pick of Harris, I think in some ways it is a way of framing Biden himself right, that he's trying to get us to think about him through a certain lens by his pick of Harris. Um, And it's going to reinforce certain things about who he wants us to see him as or who we are supposed to understand the Democratic Party as. So I think, um, as Linda mentioned, part of uh, the process of picking a vice presidential uh, companion or co-nominee is thinking about how that person fits with the candidate or what role do you want the that person to play in your campaign and and I think in in this regard Biden really was seeking to to pick someone in a way that reflected qualities about himself that he wants to highlight in this campaign. You can see it. uh, He he wants to continue a legacy of his vice presidency under Obama. And and I think that's a really traditional way that presidential candidates have have tried to pick uh, a vice presidential nominee. And in this way, it really is to emphasize certain things about his uh, candidacy and self-image and legacy that he thinks are important in this particular election in 2020. So he's trying to frame himself 
by this pick. And, and so you, you've written extensively in the book about Sarah Palin with regard to this concept of frames. Um, and the frames come from a, a variety of different perspectives, from the campaign, from the media, um, from the opponent. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the way that we think about the framing of female candidates um, and how, in this case, uh, Kamala Harris is being framed compared to Sarah Palin or Hillary Clinton four years ago or Shirley Chisholm or Geraldine Ferraro? Sure. Well, one thing that is really different about this framing is that Harris has kind of been the front runner and she was seen as kind of the safe pick, the logical pick. Um, She's prepared. She has a lot of different kinds of experience. Um, She's been in the national spotlight and run a national presidential campaign. And so when we talked about Palin and McCain, we talked about how Palin really reinforced in some ways this notion of McCain as maverick and doing something kind of unpredictable and kind of um, not just for the sake of being kind of wild and unpredictable, but because he really like believed in it and would stand up for kind of um, what he believed in, even when it wasn't the safe choice or the expected choice. And I think Harris does kind of a similar thing in reinforcing Joe Biden, but it's the notion that Biden is steady. He is safe. He's not going to do something wildly unpredictable. He's going to do something that makes sense um, and is going to continue um, this legacy of the Obama administration of being the adults in the room and being really ready to lead and govern. Um, And I think the pick also shows that Biden is mature, right? There's been a lot of talk about whether she's remorseful about attacking him in the debates over busing and um, segregation. And I think part of what this allows Biden to do, even if that has come up as a brouhaha in the media recently, is allows Biden to look kind of magnanimous and large and like, I don't hold that against her. And um And so I think that also reinforces an image of him that he'd like us to have. Mm -hmm. So I think um, in the uh, in the Palin analysis that we did, when we looked at the the frames, we talked about ones that were sort of partisan frames that were traditional in ways that women tried to apply those uh, frames to themselves. So in Palin's case, as Linda's mentioning, it was. Uh, a maverick to be an outsider uh, to to really be um, this rugged individualist uh, in the Western tradition that that Republicans had highlighted, and and I think, um, but then the gendered frames were a lot more contested, and it and it really spoke to how contested the role of women in politics had been, and the through line that you, you just ask about highlights that, and and to some degree. You can see in the early Republican reaction to to Biden's choice in in Kamala Harris is that uh, they're they're trying to to decide which ones uh, which frames might work uh, in opposition to her and and those are still coming together but you can see this uh, today this morning there was some use of the word mean uh, last night it was phony. Um, ambitious is always there. And and that can sometimes be code language for characteristics that women have struggled with in politics. Um, they don't, are they too angry? Are they too emotional? Are they too 
um, sort of ambitious. And, and I think that it is, uh, we're seeing that start to be explored to see which of those fit in opposition uh, minds to the pick. Whereas um, I think Biden's trying to use, uh, and the Biden campaign is trying to, to reference some of the more positive frames for women in politics, that she represents a breath of fresh air, a new perspective, something more progressive, and, uh, but she's still safe. She's experienced. So uh, I think some of those um, double binds that women have faced are really present in the dialogue already that you see emerging around. So I wanted to pick up on those, the sort of tensions, the way that not only Biden has to some degree framed her and, and, and how many democratic enthusiasts or Harris supporters have framed her, um, compared to how the opponents are starting to frame her. Um, and you, both talked a little bit about the double bind in terms of how women are perceived in politics. Can you explain a little bit about the the sort of um, positive frame that the Biden-Harris campaign is now um, trying to articulate and the opposition frame that is now we're starting to see form around that in contrast? Sure. So there have been some really traditional ways that um, women candidates have been seen as maybe lacking certain kinds of experience or not as competent or familiar or experienced with certain issues. And I think this pick is trying to kind of thread the needle and overcome some of those double binds. So for example, crime and being kind of appropriately tough on crime um, has been something that women have been seen more as associated with issues around like women and children and health and education and welfare. And so I think coming from an experience where she's been a prosecutor and she's been the attorney general of the largest state in the nation. Obviously in this summer, in this moment of the um, killing of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and protests against police brutality, this is a little bit of a tricky thing, particularly in the Democratic Party. Um, And so there is the the danger for her or the things she's going to have to deal with in terms of being labeled as sort of just a cop and whether that plays well or doesn't with Democratic voters. But I do think in terms of women candidates and the framing of women in politics, like this is actually a strength she could bring to the ticket. Um, And it's something that gives her kind of that both and experience. I also think um, we have talked a lot in our work about women having more legislative experience and being seen as collaborative and consensual and working as a group in, a, in the legislatures more than having kind of that um, executive experience. And she has both. She's been a senator, but also statewide executive. And that is maybe a plus that she brings to the table um, that comes beyond what women normally get. But there's also a way, um, and maybe Rhonda wants to talk about this, that she is being framed in a really traditional kind of maternal way of working on behalf of others. Because women can't really own their own ambition, so to speak. And we've already seen the the kind of criticism of a lot of women this year being too ambitious. So there's a way to talk about that that makes it more palatable to voters. Yeah. So I think women have tried to thread this needle, right, that that um, 
they're oftentimes viewed as not being as experienced. And so she's spent in her career, and you look at at several of the women that have had these high profile opportunities um, or sought them, is the demonstration of experienced, are you qualified enough to be in the game? Can you be the president? And so you, you build a resume that looks like that. And then the minute that you get to that level of achievement, then it's a question of, well, were you the kind of mother you should have been to your children? Were you at home? Were you being nurturing enough, caring enough? And and so I think the stereotypes can, can really put women candidates in a bind. And she seems to be confident in, in her sense, uh, generationally in particular, about um, herself as a feminist and a mother and the balance that, that she's she's identified for herself. And, and I thought it was really telling. I, I I looked at the Twitter descriptions that each of Biden and, and Harris have for themselves, and they both put parenthood mm-hmm. up front and center. And I think that's been a solution for women candidates in particular to say that, that my place in politics is focused on um, my role as a parent and taking care of people. And, and that defines it in some of the ways that, that Linda was talking about. And, and I think that that could be uniquely uh, appropriate in a moment where one of the primary criticisms or descriptions that people have of politics right now is that it's too conflictual, that it is um, it's not focused enough on getting collective solutions. And so uh, women in particular might be attracted to a candidate that, that defines themselves as someone who can um, have shared interests in in growing others, not just sort of a straight up individual. Absolutely. And I think she's being positioned as women have been for the last 100, 150 years, even in the suffrage movement, as sort of um, deploying power on behalf of others, right? So Obama tweeted about her last night that she was going to be this great relentless fighter for justice and for those who um, don't have a voice Mm -hmm. and need advocating for. And I do think even in all the tweets that have been coming out from other women in the Veep stakes and other, you know, prominent Democrats and everyone congratulating her and Biden on the pick, um, They've been using words like tenacious, relentless, fighter, tough. And so I think you're seeing that as a way of overcoming like maybe what are perceived weaknesses of being too feminine in politics. But they're also a way of um, kind of trying to thread that needle of I'm masculine and feminine. I'm bringing both sides to the table. Well, I'm a fighter. I'm a fighter, but I do it for other people. So her self-description was a U.S. senator and a Democratic candidate for vice president of the United States, wife, mamala, auntie, fighting for the people. And and so she's casting herself and the campaign is clearly casting her in this fighter mode. Um, and she's, you know, she's run, as she said, um, Kamala Harris for the people. Um, and we've already seen attacks even before she was named for being too ambitious, which you've talked a little bit about. And and the president referred to her as phony. What other sort of opposition frames do you anticipate besides some of those that are already coming out? Well, why don't I do that one? I, I think this morning you saw mean and um, and 
there's a little bit of this ambition. The ambition implies somehow that you're not loyal or that you're self-interested as opposed to interested on behalf of people. And I think women and people of color can be uniquely uh, characterized that way um, in negativity, that, that some of the stereotypes that are there somehow question whether they're legitimate in these positions of power. And, and it's almost that, how dare you? You're, you're doing this because you're so angry about the way things are or that you feel entitled to things. And, and I think that some of that language is meant to touch on those old um, racist and sexist stereotypes about um, do these people really belong in politics and uh, or in these positions? And they, it's not an overt conversation, but the language tries to touch on it a little bit more covert. I think you you really need to think about Kamala Harris in an intersectional lens too. It's not just about being a woman candidate, but it's about being a multiracial woman and a black woman. And I think we all remember the cover of the New Yorker with the Obamas on it, um, the satirical cover where Michelle Obama was portrayed as a kind of Angela Davis, Black Panther, angry black woman. And I think Harris is actually a good pick for Biden in that sense because she's very cool, right? She keeps her calm. She's a great questioner in those Senate hearings that is sharp and incisive, but doesn't get like angry and emotional, which is another stereotype deployed against women in politics. So um, I think she reinforces in some ways that Obama image, right, of a multiracial person who's really smart, who's really calm and cool and unflappable. And, um, who isn't going to be easy to kind of paint with that brush of being the angry black woman. But I, I think we also are really concerned about this issue of what does it mean to be an authentic woman in politics? Because it's, it's impossible, right? Like you can't be loud and rumpled and old and yelling like Bernie Sanders. You, you can't be emotional like that. You can't be angry like that. You can't be not perfectly dressed or coiffed. Um, and, and yet if you are those things like Elizabeth Dole, when she tried to run for president or Hillary Clinton, you're seen as not human enough and not authentic enough. And so this is a challenge for all kinds of candidates. Yeah. Um, I, I do think it is an attempt to create a double bind. And, and Donald Trump, as you know, we're, we're not talking about who the other candidates are, that in some ways this is a it's a it's a race against someone else as well as for your own candidacy. And I think he's been particularly effective at characterizing other candidates in ways that they've found difficult to respond to effectively. And um, in in her case, they're poking around for, uh, he in particular is poking around for what that might be with her. And phony is, is one of those things that, well, you might think that she's like this, but you should question that. And you should be skeptical of this very put together image that, that she is, um, you know, put together for herself and that the campaign has presented to the public. So um, I don't know that we know enough yet because there's really only this, this short record, but um, I don't think that the word choices are, are by accident that, that we're, it is trying to cue the angry black woman um, picture and saying that she's mean and that she's phony and, 
Um, and I think that's, we'll see more of that, but the exact terminology is still something that they're searching for. And, and so in terms of picking, um, uh, intersectional candidate from California, um, and, somebody who is also kind of in a gap between generations. Um, where do you see this pick in terms of the landscape of the Democratic Party? I talked to Julia Azari and William Adler about her position with regard to her ideology and, and how that is sort of shifting and, and presenting a kind of moderate center-left presentation of Biden, who is an older politician, but Harris, who's a younger politician. What do you see in terms of these many qualities that she's bringing to the ticket? Well, I think she embodies a lot of things that the Democratic Party would like to signal that they understand or are on board with or that are important parts of their constituency. So she embodies kind of this link to civil rights history as a as a young child who was bused um, to integrate a school. She is multiracial. She's a Black woman. Black voters are incredibly key to winning elections for Democrats in this country. They are some of the most loyal voters that the party has. Um, and I do think the choice of Harris is a way, of course, of giving some symbolic as well as substantive representation to the Black voters who have been so loyal in many elections, um, but also in this particular case, right? Joe Biden owes his winning the nomination to Black voters and to Black voters in the South Carolina primary in particular that pulled that campaign back from the brink and to James Clyburn. And Clyburn and other Black activists were really clear in the last few days that Biden needed to pick a Black woman. Um, So I think there's a way in which the pick makes sense in terms of that constituency. But I also think there's a way in which this, it's not, there's some in the black community, particularly younger black voters that may not be very excited about this kind of more moderate ish pick. Um, And yet I think there's an important constituency we should think about here, which is white women, white suburban educated women, those quote unquote soccer moms, or as we talked about them with, Palin, the hockey moms, who are the swing voters in a lot of these key states and districts. And in the summer of George Floyd and um, protesting police brutality, a lot of white women have been reading books and been on social media and been going to protests and talking about how they want to listen to the voices of Black women and um, let Black women lead. And I think the Harris pick may appeal in important ways and reinforce that Joe Biden is also listening to um, to signal that to those white women voters. So I think that um, to to look at the partisan question about fitting on the the partisan landscape, where do they where does she fit, and or how are they trying to position her? Um, from a campaign sense, I do think that that democratic politics for the last probably at least a couple of decades have been focused 
to a large degree on identity politics to the degree that that they saw it as listening to and being mindful to um, issues of social justice and individual experience of of people that might be different from from the norm or the the average as it had been viewed traditionally, uh, and so um, I think her ability and and part of what what maybe was appealing about her was her her sort of calm and deliberate way of talking about her experience and owning her experience and talking about it in politics, and and it's a moment. For that, as as Linda's mentioning, but but in the democratic sense in particular, that narrative is important. That that you demonstrate that that this isn't just about a traditional white male candidate who's electable. That that there there's at least a, a narrative here and an and an experiential nod to maybe electability can be changed and and is evolving when that might not have been an automatic narrative for Biden by himself or if he had picked somebody that was in in, in the embodiment of of himself that would have been um, less clear. So I think that's there. I I. I'm struck by the fact that you have one one of these individuals from the East Coast and one from the West Coast, which is very representative of the geography of the Democratic Party right now. And so um, I think it isn't that balancing narrative. They went straight for where their their constituencies have been as well. And these people have been elected from areas of the country that have been strong Democratic areas. And, and that does sort of demonstrate we're going to stick with those constituencies that have been the core of the Democratic Party for for decades now. And and so in this regard, she is uh, kind of expected. I mean, that seemed to be a lot of the discussion that everybody kind of thought that it was going to be Kamala Harris. Um, but at the same time, she is distinct because we've only had three females um, chosen as vice presidential candidates. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the through line from Geraldine Ferraro to Sarah Palin to Kamala Harris? Well, it's certainly not a straight line. (laughs) It's a long and circuitous (laughs) journey. Uh, But I I do think that Harris represents in some ways a, a version of this that is historic and unique, right? She does, she is the first um, black woman, the first Asian American woman, and would be the first of those women to actually win and and serve in office. And so in many ways, this is very historic. And she's sort of building on the legacies of those, you know, women who opened those doors or shattered those glass ceilings or cracked them a bit. But at the same time, I think she does walk through those doors as someone who the the context around her has changed. Everyone's sort of, I think, in the Democratic Party, at least saying it feels like it's time. Like, how has this not happened already? And I think she walks through as someone who doesn't seem like an outsider in a way, even though she in all these ways we're talking about, she is new and different and an outsider. She also seems like someone who has spent her career being kind of trying to change the system from inside, being a really high achiever, um, being somewhat not threatening, 
um, to the folks in power, but um, meeting or exceeding their academic or resume standards and, um, and, you know, not coming across as this person trying to blow up the system. So it's not surprising maybe that somebody like that would be a person who walks through that threshold. I do think that, that, that there are some through lines between those, those candidates, but um, I think that in each case, maybe one of the, the interesting things that we still confront is, is this notion that they were each chosen and the dialogue around their candidacies is that they were chosen because they were whatever their identity is. In Ferraro's case, it was because she was a woman. In Palin's case, it was because she was a woman. And now we have that it's because she was a, a Black woman. And, and I think that, that that can be both something to feel good about because those to be a milestone candidate is, is an important thing and, and it's a valuable thing. But there's, there's also, I think, if you've been someone in politics for a while, uh, you want to be taken seriously just as a candidate and, and that you were chosen because you were the best or the most qualified. And the minute that the dialogue becomes so focused on that, it can, it can detract from your sense of your own achievements. And I think, um, you saw that in her campaign that she really, uh, she would talk about the fact that she would be a milestone presidential candidate as well in that case. But, um, but she also, there was some discomfort at times with that, that she really did want to be just a candidate talking about what her positions were. Um, but, much like Hillary Clinton, when she tried to run for president, um, people both were attracted and frustrated when she owned her experience as a as a young child and on the bus again. And so, I, I think women get caught up in this, particularly pioneer women, people of color, whatever group we're, we're going to look at, and and that through line is there that. You both want to be proud of yourself for being unique, but but it can detract from your sense that you're qualified or the best candidate available. And and so are there other lessons that we can take away from your research on Sarah Palin in thinking about this historic pick? I think it's always good to think about how different candidates and candidacies fit the context of the race they're in and the history of the office or the history of the party that they're running from. And so in what ways are they going to fit into a frame or a narrative that already resonates with certain segments of voters or makes sense? Um, And so trying to think about Harris from all these different angles of who she'd appeal to or why she's being picked or what kind of experience she embodies or as Rhonda was really brilliantly saying, like how she is going to be diminished and tokenized, um, maybe dismissed unfairly by certain people, um, I think is is really important to keep in mind. I I think that that. One of the interesting things about Palin that is magnified in the Trump era is the power of popular culture in shaping the way that we 
we see these personalities. Uh, and, you know, we did in the book that we wrote talk about um, politics on Saturday Night Live and, and how powerful <laughs> the Tina Fey impression was in shaping the way people understood Sarah Palin. And and I don't think it's a surprise to hear that Alec Baldwin's impression of Donald Trump has really been a powerful tool in, in how people have viewed Donald Trump. Um, they, there's already uh, a parody of, of Kamala Harris, which is, it fits with some of the things we're starting to talk about. It's very cool. It's very polished and, and managed in its presentation. There's the wind machine through the hair and a, oftentimes a martini in hand that, that demonstrates something. And, and I think the reason popular culture gives us that is that it highlights both a moment in, in our cultural time and, and picks out really strong personality traits of the person being satirized. And so, um, in this case, I think it really does highlight um, a sense that um, she's very much together in how she wants to present herself and she's in control of presenting her image. And maybe that's uh, Palin. It was a little bit different than that. But Palin herself wrote a note about what she thought she had to offer as advice. And um, one of the things she talked about is staying in control of your own presentation of self. And um, I think it's, uh, it's going to be, uh, I am hopeful that, that there's a savviness about um, Kamala Harris that realizes that that's going to be important. And I think her record of experience is, is going to have that awareness. Um, and, and so I would suggest that, that, that staying in control of this narrative as a candidate has a lot to do with your success. And uh, to the degree that you drive it as opposed to others uh, is going to matter. So if people want to read more about your analysis of Sarah Palin, they should check out Framing Sarah Palin, Pitbulls, Puritans, and Politics, published by Rutledge, Univer Rutledge Press in 2012 by Linda Beal and Rhonda Longworth-Kinney. Um, and I wanted to thank both of you for joining me today to talk about Joe Biden's historic pick of Kamala Harris. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us.